You're listening to Rambling with Ryu, hosted by Bean, the co-founder of Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center living with a T10 spinal cord injury, and Nancy, a professional kinesiologist specializing in pediatric and adult neurorehabilitation. Welcome to our activity-based therapy series, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and those with lived experience as we explore the realm of neurorecovery. On this podcast, we educate on the lesser-known topics and give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice. And today we're going to be talking to Sandra, who is a Ryu client with a unique perspective on her journey transitioning from acute care to the community after surviving a spinal cord injury. So welcome, Sandra. Hello, everybody. So what makes my story a little bit unique is that I'm also a healthcare provider. I've been a nurse for 30 years. Most of that career was in intensive care. So on June 4th in 2018, I had finished working an eight-hour day shift and I was going to go mountain biking with a group of friends. And I was off work early that day. So I was off at three o'clock, came home and was talking to my husband and said, I think I'm going to go early and ride the trails just so I was familiar with where I wanted to take the girls. And then I decided, no, I'll just stay home and I'll go when I'm supposed to go. It was quite windy that day. Actually, it was really windy and it was raining just a little bit. And the wind uh, wasn't too bad because we ride our mountain bikes in the trails in the river valley. So I was with a group of beginner girls. So I was on beginner trails and they're on trails that I was very familiar with and had rode many times before without any difficulty. We got up to our second trail that we were going to ride on, and there was a wooden feature there in which I rode up on and slipped off a bridge, fell, and broke my back. So when I fell, I actually heard my back break. Oh, my goodness. And I instantly knew what was wrong and where it happened. And fortunate for me... One of the girls I was riding with is a nurse I also work with. So she um, held my spine for me and I told the girls to call 911 and I had a smartwatch on and I proceeded to phone my husband and I said, honey, you need to come. I broke my back. Wow. So we were in the tree line and an ambulance arrived, but they couldn't get me out of there. So they had to call the tactical fire department to get me out of the trees and where I was and I remember I don't remember them but I remember being in the ambulance and asking the attendant if they could take me to the Royal Alec and they said no we're going to take you to the university hospital so I arrived at the university hospital I don't remember the drive there I don't know if they gave me really good drugs or what they did because I do remember it being extremely painful Mm -hmm. and in the emergency department I remember this physician introduced himself to me. And then another physician came in and I recognized him. He was a physician I worked with on and off for about 20 years. And so I was very relieved to see him. And I knew he was a neurosurgeon. And so that I was in very good hands and that he could do the operation because I knew at that point that I needed one. Interestingly enough, throughout the rest of the stay in the emergency department, I don't even remember my husband being there. He said he was there all night and that his son was even there. And I I don't recall seeing him at all or even talking to him. Yeah. 
And I just remember telling them that I'm in pain. I'm in a lot of pain. And so they gave me a lot for pain. Um, my husband said I was taken up to neurosurgery at the university hospital and they were going to take me for surgery six o'clock the following morning, which they did. So I had surgery very quickly. I was riding my bike in the evening. So the accident probably happened at about eight o'clock at night. And I had my surgery by six o'clock the following morning. Okay. So it was crazy because I knew what it was like to be a nurse, but I had no idea what it was like to be a patient. And I realized then that what's so important is that patients know very quickly if someone even cares about them or are you just there to do a job. You can tell the difference very quickly and very easily. And I think I was naive to that before in my career, I hate to say, but I know this has changed me as a nurse. Yeah, And I think I've become quite valuable in our own unit because we do see patients with spinal cord injuries. And now I understand everything, not just the acute part of the injury, but what you're going to face long term and what you're going through from the acute stage of illness to what you're going to go through the next few years, which I had no idea before. Yeah, I mean, most people don't, right? Until you're in the situation yourself. Even as a healthcare provider, you see it with a certain lens on, even when you see people with spinal cord injuries and stuff, right? But when it's actually you and you're in that position as the patient, it really opens your eyes up to a lot of what we miss as healthcare providers. Yeah, like I always saw people in the very acute stages. I mean, I seen them in ICU and and once they left ICU, I I never knew what they would go on to need things like having to rely on people to teach you how you're going to live in this new situation that you're in. How are you going to manage in your own home? Can you even manage in your own home? And what does that look like? I didn't even realize people, you know, it's weird because you think you should know this, that their lives are obviously going to change, but you, you don't focus on that if that makes sense when you work in the acute setting. Yeah, because I think like, especially working in the intensive care unit, you know, your focus is on stabilizing the person and making sure they make it through the night or the day or whatever. But I think, you know, you're kind of conditioned to just be like, because, you know, those beds fill up so fast, there's such a high turnover rate, right, that you don't really have that time to think about what people's lives are actually going to be like. Yeah, and I could just remember some of the nurses, the best nurses, were the ones that wouldn't just come in the room and, and, you know, say my name, they would come in quietly, touch my hand and wait for me to wake up from the sensation of that touch. And that made such a difference because you could tell that they really cared. Yeah. Versus just walking in saying, you know, saying my name and doing whatever they need to do and leaving. I can remember one time they had fit a wheelchair for me. This was when I was still in ICU. And I knew that physio had very specifically fit a wheelchair for me for good reasons. They didn't want me to develop foot drop. So everything was measured appropriately for my body size. And they were Mm -hmm. getting me up to sit in the chair and it took a couple people because they were using a mechanical lift Mm -hmm. and they were getting me up and they got me into the chair. And my nurse realized when they sat me down that it was the wrong chair. And she looked at her colleague who was standing behind me and Mm -hmm. she said, this is the wrong chair. And her colleague said, oh, well, she's up now. And I could tell that my nurse wanted to say something, 
to her and like to support me and say, you know what, you can't do that. But she didn't feel right in the situation to confront her while I'm there. And so I just said, you know what, it's important actually that I'm in the right chair. You can't leave me in the wrong chair. And I actually started to cry and I realized how insensitive some nurses can be. And I partly thought back and hoped that I was never like that. Mm -hmm. And it's just little things like that, that if you break a client's spirit, everything else that's going on doesn't matter. Yeah. That's very true. And I think that's why it's important that we talk to you because you do have that unique perspective on these things. Being a nurse in the ICU and now being the patient. So do you feel like you were supported in your stay there? I think there was some staff that really did support me in just even listening and just being there and others didn't. And I think that's sadly probably true of people I work with today. Yeah, There's some that are there because they're simply doing a job. And there's others that are there because they actually do care and actually do want to make a difference for people. I think, thank goodness, the majority of people I've come across are there for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. The problem is it, it only takes one or two that really breaks a person's spirit and makes it very difficult to bounce back from that, that your senses of people actually caring. When you go from a time in your life where you're extremely independent and very independent, all of a sudden now having to depend on someone for everything is scary, but at the same time, you just have to let yourself succumb to that. Mm-hmm. And you just hope that people care and will take the time to listen to you and hear what you need. And it's simple things, you know, like I remember another time they got me up in a chair and I know they're busy and I was put in a wheelchair and faced the wall and I couldn't move. So there I was sitting facing a wall for three hours. Oh, man. You don't even realize what that does to someone's mental state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost being in like solitary confinement, right? You can't move, you can't see anything, and you're just there. Yes. And I mean, the reason why I couldn't move was it was a, it was a chair that I wasn't normally in. So I didn't have the strength yet to be able to push it and keep myself stable and wheel around. And I don't think that's done intentionally. I just think people don't even realize what they've done. Yeah, it's definitely an oversight. I mean, even when I was first paralyzed, even hanging out with my friends, they would be pushing me and then they would just leave me and then start talking behind me in a circle. So I would just be facing outwards and not be able to participate in the conversation. So I didn't like, And it's not done intentionally. It's just done because they don't know what it's like to be in a wheelchair. That's right. But for the most part, physio, what I did find was extremely important. And I knew right from the beginning when I was injured was that, okay, I am just beginning now. This is this is not the end by any stretch. That physio is going to be what's the most important thing I do. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to do as much physio as I could, as soon as I could, for as long as I could if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So when I was told that I would be going to the Glen Rose and I was actually assessed for the Glen Rose very quickly. So just to backtrack a little bit, I spent about three weeks in neuro ICU. Okay. Some of the other things that I experienced that, you know, I thought were just benign things that I've always done to patients was something as simple as an arterial line mm-hmm. that is put in the wrist. All of our patients pretty much have those 
And I always thought once I kind of figured that not ever having one before that I thought it would be painful going in, but once it was in that it wouldn't be bothersome at all. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that's not true. And when I think about it, it all makes sense. But when they drew my blood, one of the things they do is they'll flush the line very quickly and I would get this rush of heat. And I thought, oh my God, I had no idea that this would get so hot. Yet it makes sense because you flush your blood very quickly into the hand. So it makes sense that it would get hot. And then after it would get really cold. So it would go hot to cold. And I thought, you know, I had no idea that that even occurred. And so now I can tell people, listen, this is normal. This is what you're going to feel when we do this. Something as simple as that or educate my own staff that I work with that, listen, that's what people feel when this happens. And we think it's just nothing because it's yeah. something we do on every patient. It's one of the simplest things we do in the course of a day with our patients in intensive care. Yeah. We just kind of get desensitized to some things, right? Because like you said, it is something that you do all the time and you just don't think twice about it. No, exactly. So three weeks I spent in neuro ICU and then I, I was assessed to go to the Glen Rose. I was very excited about going to the Glen Rose because I thought, okay, now we're on the path to healing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that looked like, but I at least knew, okay, I'm going there rather quickly. I had heard that people spend a lot of time waiting to go to the Glen Rose. And so I felt very fortunate that this whole process was going to happen very quickly for me. So I was transferred out of the neuro ICU to neurosurgery ward. I was there for about two weeks, maybe three, and then I was transferred over to the Glen Rose. So before we get to the next stop, I'm going to rewind a little bit here. And I just wanted to ask, so what did the doctors tell you when you came out of surgery? What was that conversation like? Well, it was interesting. I think they were nervous what you don't realize is one of the physicians that worked in neuro, so the neurosurgeon I'd worked with, and he knew that I'd worked with him. And I think for them to know somebody on a personal level like that, I think is much more difficult for them than if they don't know you at all. Not to say that it's not difficult for them to tell anyone this kind of news. So no one was really outright telling me what was wrong or what the future was going to look like. So no one said, you're not going to walk again, or the odds of you walking again are very poor. Nobody said that to me at all. So the surgeon I knew, as well as the intensivist, I also knew, and I'd worked with him for probably 25 years. So he never really said anything to me. Now, I don't know what was said to my husband. Okay. So at this point, all I knew was I was going to the Glen Rose. I was going for rehab. Inside, I knew though, that this was serious, if that makes sense. So when I was injured, I couldn't feel anything from the nipple line down, nothing. I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't move anything. The following morning after surgery, I remember the surgeon walking around the foot of the bed and I said, you just touched me. And he, he stopped and was shocked that I could feel. And he said, well, where did I touch you? And I said, well, I have no idea. All I know is you touched me, but I didn't have a where that was. As time went on, I gained more and more sensation. Mm -hmm. And so Sandra, what was your injury? What did they tell you you'd broken? They didn't tell me. So it was through my husband that I finally knew that I had 
fractured at T3 and incomplete spinal cord injury. Okay. And then, so you had surgery. Do you now have like rods or hardware in there? Yeah. I have rods on both sides and I believe they go from, now I'm going to completely guess here. My husband was shown all this. I believe that from about C7, C6 to about T6, T7. So nobody talked to you about this even after you were awake? They may have and I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, fair. That is quite possible. I really don't remember a whole lot. So I think they gave me some pretty decent drugs. Yeah. Because I really don't know a whole lot. But what I, most of what I know is from talking to physicians in the last year or so. Yeah. Or through my husband. Okay. So now you're waiting to go to the Glenrose. Was there excitement about getting there? Did you have certain expectations? So I was really excited to go there because I knew that the Glenrose was a rehabilitation hospital and and quite a well-known hospital in Canada. I knew that. So I was quite excited to go. And as it was at the university, I was only getting about an hour of physio a day. And that was Monday to Friday. So I really thought, and I didn't know for sure, but I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to the Glenrose, I was thinking, you know, they told me that I wasn't going to like them because they were going to make me work hard. So I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm probably going to get about four hours of physio a day, every day, that they'll work me really hard. And I was ready for it because I Mm -hmm. thought I have two options here, do nothing and I will get nothing or do everything I can. And who knows what will happen? Yep. Because no one at this point ever definitively said to Rick or myself that there was no hope of me walking again. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I'm glad that nobody told you that because I don't like it when they tell people that. Yeah. Okay, so now you're at the Glenrose. So talk us through your first day. Actually, did you have to go through the tunnels to get there? No, I went straight from the university hospital. So I went through hospital transfer it happened very quickly like we knew that I was on the list to go so when it happened it happened really quickly so my sister actually accompanied me there because my husband didn't have time to get there to accompany me so inter-hospital transport was fantastic they were Mm -hmm. really nice they explained everything that was going to happen and you know where we were going allowed my sister to come with us so that that was fantastic. And we went straight upstairs. So they, we went straight to the Glenrose and upstairs to my room. So I was in my room and then my husband met me there. And then there was so many people came in. I couldn't remember who was who. And I don't think he could either. We were in a situation where it just felt like everything was out of control. That's the best way I can describe it. And what was very interesting that we both thought was, I don't know who it was, if it was a discharge coordinator or what the title of the person was, but she had come in and she said, we know your discharge date already. I thought, what? Like we just got here. And she said, you can expect to be discharged on such and such date. And I thought that was so surprising. I can't even remember what the date was, but just the thought that They hadn't met me yet, hadn't even assessed me, and they already had an anticipated discharge date. Really took me by surprise. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. 
I mean, she did say that it's flexible depending on what's going on, but I was, I was shocked by that, that they knew a discharge date. So I can't remember everybody that came in, but there was quite a few people that came in. And then I also remember a psychologist came in to see me. Sorry, on your first day? I think so. It was my first or second day okay. that the psychologist came and did a quick interview And there was something that he said, I can't remember what it was, and I didn't agree with him. And he really just kind of pushed my thoughts aside like they didn't matter. And I thought, well, what? I was so shocked by that. And I just thought, no, you know what? I don't want to see you. Like, if you're not going to listen to what I'm saying and take that as my reality Mm -hmm. and my perception of what's going on, but almost tell me it's wrong then I don't want to talk to you. Yeah, fair. So I didn't have any psychological help while I was there. So they didn't offer someone else or didn't look into why I was refusing to see anyone. They just saw that I'd refused and that was the end of that. Okay. Can I just interject here? Because yeah, you told me that they said that your mental capacity wasn't strong enough to handle your injury or something like that. Yeah, it was something weird. And I just thought, okay, you don't know me even. How can you say that? So I just thought, well, I don't want to see someone that's not going to really listen to me Mm -hmm. and hear what I had to say. So that's kind of how the first day went. So we didn't do a whole lot. I met the nurse. I don't believe I met who was going to be my physio or my OT. I don't think I met them yet. Okay. And then did anybody talk to you about your goals or was that when you met with your PT and your OT that you went over your short-term and long-term goals? It was when I met my PT and OT that we went over my short-term and long-term goals. And that was a very interesting experience in that I really found that when they asked me what my goals were, they almost would convince me that they weren't right felt like they tried to convince me that they weren't right, that it was almost like if my goals weren't what theirs were, then mine weren't achievable or even worth trying for. Do you remember what you said your goals were? I don't. It's it's been too far back. I can't even remember. I'm sure one of them was that I I would bet I said I want to walk. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I told you that wasn't one of my goals. I'm sure it was. Yeah. And that's a main goal for a lot of people who have an SCI, especially in the very beginning stages where, you know, you really do want to walk again. Of course. I I mean, I'd be lying to you if I told you that I don't want to walk again even now. Yeah. Why not shoot for the moon? Exactly. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. So... I, what I can guarantee is if I don't do anything, I can sit in this chair for the rest of my life. But it's interesting. I found a text that I had texted to my husband one night, and this is what I texted him. This was September 7th, 2018. So I would have been at the Glen Rose for a while now because that accident happened in June. So Mm -hmm. September 7th, 2018, I said, I feel so alone here. It's like I have to do it on my own. Every concern I have just seems to fall on deaf ears. There is always an answer for everything. Whatever is important to me to work on is disregarded as it does not fit 
with their preconceived goals. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And then the shocking thing was, you know, I thought here I was going to the Glen Rose where I thought truly I was going to have about four hours, you know, of intensive therapy a day at least. Mm -hmm. I was really disappointed to find out that I was only going to have a maximum two hours, four days a week, because every Wednesday, I believe it was, we had to go to lifestyles where we were either taught about self-catheterization, those types of things, or how to prevent pressure injuries, or we would be introduced to people who have had a spinal cord injury and are living in the community already. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying that that isn't valuable, but I don't think that should have, in my opinion, taken up very valuable physio or occupational therapy time that that should have been in addition to that because what I do know now is I was completely unprepared to go home and to tell you the truth I probably went home too early Mm -hmm. well a lot of people feel that way yeah mentally I was ready to go home uh, but physically I cannot believe I actually went home There was a lot of pressure from day one that my husband really felt to get me home. A lot of pressure. They wanted to know, what does our house look like? So nobody came out to our house. We tried describing it, and he sent a lot of pictures of what the house looked like. So we lived in a three-story nightmare. It really was. Just to get in my house, so in the garage, what we ended up doing was installing a porch lift, which worked very well. Yeah. And that got me in the back door. And then there was three stairs that had to get me to the main floor. So what they told us to do was get a stair lift. And we got that to get me from the porch area to the main floor. And the main floor was consisted of a living room, kitchen, and that's it. Then I had to take another stair lift to go upstairs to the main upstairs, which is where our master bedroom and the washroom was. And there was no washroom that was accessible for me. I barely could get in the washrooms. I had to sit sideways to the sinks to try to brush my teeth or wash my face. Mm -hmm. There was no way I could have a bath or shower on my own. That was just not going to happen. So we had to have home care, which was set up very quickly. Thank goodness. But most of the healthcare aides that came had no clue what they were doing. There was no pre-training for them. I think they were just as surprised at how to use these stair lifts as we were. Mm-hmm. So we're all learning together. And thank God I had some medical background that I at least knew what should happen. But I never once used a stair lift at the Glen Rose. Yep. And Rick and I were never allowed to even try one out. We were just told this is what we need and you need to get it installed. And I can remember uh, my husband saying that he was called almost on a daily basis. Are those stair lifts in yet? Are those stair lifts in yet? And it really felt like I was pushed out. It was like, you've been here long enough almost was how I felt. You need to go home. And he was getting that feeling too. And it really got to the point where we were just like, you know what? We just want to go. Can I just ask, how long were you at the Glen Rose for? So I think probably three months. 
Okay. Yeah, that's kind of average now. Like three to six months is kind of average for the stay at the Glenrose after a spinal cord injury. Yeah, I would say about three months was about how long I was there. And it got to the point where it was like, you know what? If you don't want me here, then I might as well go and we'll just figure this out. But it was shocking to think that that's what they told us we needed to put in the house without even knowing if we could use it. Yeah, totally. Before we go to you guys leaving the Glen Rose, let's talk about that. So like, what did you learn there? Like, walk us through your stay, stay there. What did you learn? What did you take away from there? And what was the environment on the unit like? Okay, so what I learned in physio was mainly, God, compared to where I'm at now, not a whole lot. Isn't that terrible? I understand they can't keep me there forever. And that what they need to do was at least get me to the point where I could function at home. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But what was frustrating was I was just starting my physio, in, in my opinion. And I just found that like a lot of time was wasted getting a wheelchair. And I was like, are we seriously going to use physio time to fit me in a wheelchair? And this was not just a one-time session. This this took a few And then they're asking me what I want. Well, how the heck do I know what I want? I've never been in a wheelchair before. I don't have a clue what I or what I need. And again, it was like, why are we using physio time to do this? It should be done in some other time. And then the frustrating thing was they had wheelchairs there for you to try out and you're going to make this purchase and it's not cheap. So you want to make sure you get it right. And I can remember them putting me in a wheelchair that maybe would have been one I chose, except it was not the right size for me. It wasn't set up properly. And my back hurt so bad. I was just like, I don't care what you do, get me out of this thing. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to make it fit in some way, because maybe it would have been one I chose, I completely said, no, I don't want it because my back hurts so bad. You're not sticking me back in there. And it was things like that, that it was just like, well, how am I supposed to figure this out when you don't even have the right size or the right fitting? And then you're asking me if I want to buy it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did they ever bring in somebody who like was already in a wheelchair, like somebody with experience? No, it was my physiotherapist and the sales rep from the company. So again, able-bodied people telling you what to do with your disabled body. Yes, that is how that was. And it was my physio time was used up doing that, which was uh, really frustrating. So they did work on finally getting me on a real bed and teaching me how to turn side to side on a real bed. They finally did get that, but it was at the end. And I can be honest with you, I still don't know how to do it properly. So I didn't have enough time in the Mm -hmm. real environment. I mean, it's one thing to be able to teach someone that on their mats and I get you need to start there to learn the technique. But one of my goals was, what do I do if I fall out of this chair? Like, what do I do? And he said, you know what? People with your level of injury just will not have the strength to get back in the chair. So we're not going to teach you that. What? And I can remember too, I said, well, I want to sit on a couch. That's one of the things I want to do is I'm, I want to sit on a couch. I want to be able to sit on a couch and, and watch a movie and put yeah. the refrigerator up. People with injuries at your level don't do things like that. 
So that's what I mean when I said like my goals were disregarded. Yeah, that's really hard for me to hear. And maybe early on that wasn't realistic, but long term they should have said, yes, it is realistic. That's my goal. If my goal is not their goal, that shouldn't really matter. So do you feel like while you were there, do you feel like they fostered like socializing friendships or do you feel like you were isolated further? Like what was the vibe like there while you were there? For the most part, they really encouraged you to go to a common area to have meals and they introduced you to everyone. So I think they did foster that, to be honest with you. I know I met someone there who I still talk to today. Mm -hmm. He also suffered a spinal cord injury. So mm-hmm. he was injured around the same time as me, I think a couple weeks after his injury occurred. But we still talk. So they did foster that. And I don't mm-hmm. know so much if they fostered it or if it just happened because you just needed someone to talk to. And so yeah. you start talking to each other. There was also another lady that was there who I still talk to who had a spinal cord injury. So. Mm-hmm. I would say the friendships did occur, whether it's because they fostered fostered them or they happened naturally. It was probably both. Yeah. So they, they didn't like you staying isolated in your room. They did push you to get out. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, they did do that. And I can be honest with you, my nurse, they gave me a primary nurse, mm-hmm. which was good as well because you needed some consistency. Yeah. I felt I did. And maybe because we connected on a level Mm -hmm. that that worked, you know, and you're really vulnerable, a vulnerability that I help people through in my career Mm -hmm. on a daily basis and don't think about it. But when you're on the other side, you know, and you're hanging in a chair and you're thinking, oh, my God, if you don't get me over the toilet, I'm going to have an accident on the floor. And you do. And you think how demeaning this Mm -hmm. is. You know, yet I know as a healthcare provider, you don't think that, but as the person doing it. So having that permanent person, I think was very helpful. Yeah, for sure. At this point, what was your bowel and bladder situation like? Well, I can remember. So I needed to cath. I needed to intermittent cath every four hours. Mm -hmm. So I can remember being exhausted. Like I was exhausted. That was one thing I was so tired because every four hours you're cathing, including in the middle of the night. So initially in the middle of the night, they would do the cast to try to let me get as much sleep as I could. Mm-hmm. And then they pushed it to where I needed to do it. And I can remember one night a nurse, I was tired and it was difficult to get me to wake up. They'd wake me up and leave and come back and I'd be sound asleep again and I didn't do anything. So then she, she almost scolded me like I was a child if that makes sense so I was a little put off and then I remember her saying to me she suggested that I have a surgery a suprapubic catheter and I thought who are you to stand there and suggest to me that I should have a surgery like where's this like that is stepping out of boundaries from what I know in my profession so I was really put off by that, that she would even suggest that when I was not having any problems cathing, it was just, I was exhausted. 
Yeah, and rightly so. It's hard enough when you have a spinal cord injury and now you have to move your whole body with your arms, which most people are not used to doing. And everything takes an exponential amount, more amount of energy to do. So it's not surprising that you're exhausted in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then, so initially they wanted me to learn how to self-cath. And even that too, I was frustrated with because we were struggling to figure out how I was going to live in the community and calf if I didn't have all my supplies or my equipment, I should say, if that makes sense. So to this day, I still struggle, you know, when I'm out in public going, okay, now I have to go to the bathroom. How am I going to do this without my feet falling into the toilet and getting my feet soaking wet? So I still struggle with that. And at this point today, I am working with the Glen Rose to work through that. But I don't know if we're going to come to a solution. I'm not confident that we're going to come to a solution, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Keep an open mind here, but I don't know if we're going to. I think I need to talk to friends that I've made in the community about what I need to do. I'm just not sure we're going to come to a solution to solve the problem. Because as much as there's accessible washrooms out there, they are not designed for people that need to cath in a wheelchair. Yeah, I've learned that for sure. When you're having to stick your feet up and not have them fall in a toilet, there is no bathroom yet where I found where that's, there's something in place to prevent that from happening. There just isn't. Yeah. So that was the bladder. And then they wanted to teach me my bowel routine. And I said, I remember saying to my nurse, I am not ready for this clearly telling her I wasn't ready. So she gave me more time, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I didn't even know what a bell routine was. So I was, I was shocked to learn what it all entailed. Mm -hmm. Once I learned all that, I said, I do plan on going back to work. And when I go back to work, I cannot be spending a half an hour to an hour trying to do a bell routine before I go to work. Like that's just that's not possible. I start work at seven in the morning. I, I don't yeah. have a time. So I told them there that I need to plan to do my bell routine at night. And they were very open to that, which was good. But they wanted me to be sure that that's what I wanted. Because what I didn't realize was you're training your body to consistently do it at that time or around that time. And I told them I was sure listen, I'm going to work. I don't have that kind of time. I need to do it in the evening and then I can sleep the night, get up in the morning and go to work. So they were open to that, which was good, but that was all taught by my nurse, not by anybody else. Mm-hmm. And then physio focused mainly on my balance and very little on transfers. Really? Very little. It was occupational therapy that worked more on my transfers than physio did. Yeah, I'm not sure how they divvy up responsibilities there. It was interesting, but my transfers were not great when I left there. Mm -hmm. I got the impression that they were like, well, they're good enough and they'll just get better with time, but they weren't great. They actually weren't very safe at all. But like I said, towards the end, with all the pressure that my husband was feeling to get me out of there. I mean, he was getting a phone call every day. Are these stair chairs in place? And they're not cheap. Mm -mm. No, nothing is cheap. No, I mean, 
everything was out of control. My husband was trying to get the house organized. He was selling everything and anything he could to pay for the equipment that we were going to need to mm. get the house set up just for me to come home, only to find out after, you know, living there for a month or so that this was not going to work long term. We need to sell the house and get out of it and either buy an accessible home mm -hmm. or build one accessible for me. And, you know, the crazy thing too was at one point, I remember them telling me on more than one occasion, well, you need to look at renting an apartment until your house is ready. And I'm like, are you crazy? I can't pay rent on an apartment plus a mortgage. Like mm -hmm. I'm not working right now. Like, are you, are you nuts? I like, I couldn't even believe that that came out of their mouth, that that was a solution for me. And, yeah. and I'm supposed to live apart from my husband and my dogs, which were like my kids. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to live apart from them when I've had, you know, a, a life changing event. It was just shocking that they would even suggest that. Yeah. And it was suggested on more than one occasion. And the other thing that happened was I remember my husband saying they would have these meetings once a week about everyone, a team meeting about the patient and what their progress was like. And so I remember my husband saying, well, you're having a team meeting. Are we not part of the team? And they said, well, yeah, you are. And so my husband said, well, can't I come to these team meetings then? And they said to him, no, we talk in technical language that you wouldn't understand. And he said, well, Sandra understands that language. Is she not part of the team? Can't she come? And that was that fell on silence. Yeah. And the sense I got, I don't know if this is true or not, but I really got the sense that it's the occupational therapist and the physiotherapist who have the most say as to when you should be discharged and whether or not you're ready to be discharged. That was the sense I got. Because I remember talking to my physician and telling him, I don't feel ready. These are the things I'm concerned about that I don't feel I'm ready to do. And then I'd find out that, nope, everyone feels I'm ready to go. And I thought, well, that's, that's strange because he agreed with my goals. Or when I had my meeting with him, he agreed with my goals and my concerns. And yet it would come out that, nope, I'm meeting all my goals and I should be ready to go home. And I thought, well, whose goals are we talking about? Yeah. So it was very interesting, but I by no means was prepared to go home. They yeah. do have a room there, an apartment that has a bedroom and a kitchen. I did opt to spend a weekend in there mm -hmm. because I knew it was getting very close to me going home and I was terrified. I didn't know what I was going to be able to really do. And, and so I thought, you know what, if I at least spend the weekend in there, maybe I will feel like I'm confident enough to at least go home. So I did do that. One of my best friends stayed in there with me just in case I needed help. Mm -hmm. So I did spend the weekend in there, which made me feel a little better about going home. But again, there's no stair lifts in there. Yeah. I mean, they set those stair lifts up the best they could in my house, but some of the height transfers to get on the stair lift was crazy. Yeah. And then how many wheelchairs did you need at home? I, we called it a rent-a-wreck. <laughs> you got a, a wheelchair rental from 
the place where you purchased your wheelchair from. So we went with Equal Medical because again, we just, we had no idea. We're just like, okay, that sounds fine. That's who we'll go with. And I think it was $150 a month. You rented these wheelchairs from them and we called it a rent a wreck. It was just unbelievable, uncomfortable. It didn't wheel right, but it's what you had. And we realized very quickly that it's not safe in the setup we have to not have at least two wheelchairs because what was happening was when we took that first stair lift up, the stair chair would get me to the top of the stairs and then my husband would put the wheelchair on top of his, lift it over his head and then walk up the stairs between me and the stair lift to get the wheelchair to the next level. And we thought, this is dangerous. Like, this is crazy. So yeah. we purchasing a second wheelchair, that one we had to pay for. The other one was covered by... AADL, but in the meantime, it was taking forever. So they did say that we could try to get a wheelchair from somewhere in the Glen Rose. I don't know who it's through. I can't remember anymore. Those have got to be the oldest wheelchairs that the hospitals just don't want anymore. And I hate to sound ungrateful because at least there was something available, but we were just like, no, forget it. These chairs will be here and we can just keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take it back a little bit again, back to Glenrose. While you were there, like, did anybody talk to you about nutrition or about, like, your health in general? The only information I remember getting, nothing about nutrition, to be honest. Hmm. Skin health, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, they did talk to you about, so I guess nutrition a little bit when it came to skin, but it was more about, you know, how often you need to offload your bottom or to position change, and the problem with pressure sores. So skin health, yes. Nutrition, no. So you know the dietitian didn't come talk to you? Not that I recall. In the hospital, yes, because they wanted me to have more protein, yeah. but not in the Glen Rose. Huh, interesting. Okay. And then let's talk about your mental health for a little bit. Do you feel that your mental health was a priority? Do you feel like you were supported in that? So initially, because the psychologist really, I, I got the sense early in that first interview that my opinion didn't matter or was wrong. I refused any kind of help with mental health. So I basically relied on one other client that was there. I relied on them to, you know, just talk through how I'm feeling and, and what's going on and, and how he was feeling. I'm not sure I would have done very well without him, to be honest. My husband was amazing. He listened to a lot of how I felt. Mm -hmm. There were times where I wanted to die. I'm not going to lie. And I worked through that basically on my own with the help of my husband and, and that friend. Like, yeah, those thoughts are normal after having a traumatic injury, right? I mean, I thought the same thing and... Well, 99% of people that I've talked to have said the same thing as well, but you should have like those supports in place to help you through those thoughts and through those challenging times. Yeah. And I didn't ask for more help because it will, from my perspective, that first meeting was so negative that mm. I thought, well, this is what it's like. I'm, I'm not even going to bother asking for someone else. I didn't even know if there was someone else that I could speak to, or if that was the only psychologist they had, to be honest. 
yeah, I mean, well, they have two, but I mean, yeah, I can't speak to what happened at that time, right? Because I wasn't there, obviously. Did anyone talk to you about sexuality or sexual health or anything along those lines? No. Really? Even as a married woman, nobody talked to you or your husband? No. And no, and I, it wasn't offered from what I recall. To be honest, at the time, I wasn't thinking about it anyway. Yeah. I really wasn't. So I didn't feel like I missed out on anything. And I mean, now I talk to my friends that I've met in the community if I have any questions in regards to sexuality or sexual health. Mm -hmm. So like as a nurse, how do you feel like your interactions were with your nurses there? The nurses there, I think, were for the most part, they were really good. They knew their job well. I think they've had so much experience with people that have had a spinal cord injury that they knew when to push and when to back off, when to push you to be independent and recognize that like when I said, I'm not ready for this, that they Mm -hmm. respected I wasn't ready for it and gave me the time, Mm -hmm. but at least had my mind open to the fact that there's more things I'm going to have to learn and I am going to have to get there. They also tried their best to help me work through things like with my bowel routine, for example, I was struggling to be able to reach and to do things properly. So they really looked at options. So they would tie up a transfer belt to make me feel more secure when I was leaning over to the side, because I felt like I was going to fall on my face. So they really had a lot of experience and brought that experience into it, which was Mm -hmm. very, very helpful. Okay, that's good. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. Now there was the odd one, again, you know, that I struggled with. But I I think that's anywhere you go, you're going to have the odd person that just isn't functioning in their job at the same level as others are. Mm -hmm. And the patients pick that up right away. Because I wasn't the only one that felt that way about, you know, a couple of the nurses. Mm -hmm. the group of us that sat and chatted and got to know each other, it was very interesting because the same names would come up that people didn't like. And it was like, you know what? It's because of the way they approach you and the way they do their job mm-hmm. or come across, you know, like I'm the authority. Yeah. You're the patient and you're going to listen to me. There was the odd person that came across that way. And that just doesn't fly. No, no, it certainly doesn't. Okay, so let's go uh, talk about a little bit of physio and stuff. So, you know, we know they have millions of dollars worth of equipment. From your experience, were you allowed to use this equipment? And if so, which what were you allowed to use and did they use it on you? Okay, so at the Glenrose, for me, basically, I used the stacking cones to work on my balance and my side reaching. Mm-hmm. I used a ball where they would hold a ball up and have me go to touch it or they would use their hands. I did use the Wii. They had a Wii. So use the Wii. Bowling was one of them to get me to maintain my balance Mm -hmm. and my arms forward. And then they had lifting blocks where I would basically do tricep pushes or dips on them. Mm -hmm. But that was all they used with me. They didn't use anything else. And the sad part is when I was at physio one day, there was a sub physiotherapist. So my physiotherapist wasn't there. So they assigned someone else to me. Mm -hmm. And she realized that I could 
abduct my legs mm -hmm. against gravity. And she was surprised by that. Just in our session, she had come across that I could do that. So she kept working with it. And then no one worked with it again. And I'm sure that was documented. And I was really shocked by that when I look back on it. Like, why didn't we go with that? When you discovered I had that kind of movement or that ability, why we didn't work with that early on and not lose that muscle mass? Yeah. Did they stand you or um, no. did you use the logo mat to walk? Uh, what kind of mat? It's, just, it's a robotic external exoskeleton that helps you walk over a treadmill. No, they did not. I did use FES, but with the FES, so the Functional Electrical Stimuli Bike, they mm -hmm. did put me on that. So I did use that a couple times. And sadly, again, one of the times we spent mostly training the physiotherapist how to use it rather than me actually getting the opportunity to work on it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because they were teaching them, you know, where to place the pads, how to set up the patient, how to set up the program. Mm -hmm. That by the time I actually got to do anything on the bike that first session, I think it was maybe five minutes. It wasn't very long. And that's what's frustrating is you, like, there was so many times where I went down to physio and we seemed to talk and it was like, why are we talking? Let's just get to work. Yeah. And that was the one thing that really shocked me about Ryu when I came to Ryu and I learned about Ryu from other people in the Glen Rose, other clients, not staff. So clients would talk and I'd be like, what are you talking about? And I thought, I got to go to this place. I got to meet these people. And what shocked me was the first day I came to Ryu, it was like, there's no time to sit around. Like, you get working. We have an hour. Let's go. And that's exactly what I thought the Glen Rose was going to be, is we, we have this time. Let's not talk. Let's get working. And we'll mm -hmm. talk later. And we spent so much time, it seemed, talking. Yeah. About what I don't even know anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My <laughs> same <laughs> it was like, can we work like it seemed like an hour of physio was actually a half hour yeah did they ever stand you no the first time I stood after the accident was when I was at Rio and not only did I stand it was Alex who said do you want to walk and it was like of course I want to walk and she got a walker and I actually have a video of that yeah mm-hmm where we went for a walk down the hall with the walker and mm -hmm. Darian was crawling on the ground behind, just spotting. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, no, they didn't do any of that. That was, remember they told me people like you with your type of injury don't sit on a couch. Can you imagine if I asked them to stand? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't mean to sound rude or ungrateful but it was very interesting that way but I think I think there could have been more I guess is what I'm saying yeah and you're not the only one to say these things right a lot of people have had the same experiences and I do believe things are changing now in the positive direction but it is important to talk about these things and to bring light to them yeah like I just think getting fit for a wheelchair shouldn't be used up in a physio session when you have such limited time and I, I get it they have limited people yeah. and they 
so many clients that they need to see. So I understand they're stretched, but all the more reason why you don't want to waste that valuable time you have. I think physio, what I've learned from all of this is physiotherapy is so important. Mm -hmm. So, so important. And even in acute care, we do not allow as a society or as a province, we don't give enough time for physio. I think it's a shame that we don't invest more time and money into physiotherapy and, and not just physiotherapy. I mean, occupational therapy as well, you know, in the hospital in active treatment, like they work Monday to Friday, you know, from seven to about five o'clock. Well, people need physio beyond that. And it's, you know, really sad that in active treatment, we still haven't recognized that that is such a vital part of people getting better and that it needs to happen early. Like that's not something that like our physiotherapy team in intensive care is amazing and they do an amazing job. And I look at them and I have such respect for them because I think that's so important. I didn't even realize prior to my injury, just how important it was. I knew it was important, but I had no idea Mm -hmm. just how important and how valuable they are. And that, we're missing the boat there in not investing more time and effort into them. Yeah. So before you left the Glenrose, before you discharged, were you able to learn some wheelchair skills? I did. (laughs) I couldn't do a wheelie to save my soul. And they told me I had to pop a wheelie and be up on it for two minutes. (laughs) I think I was one of their hardest clients. I think they did teach me some wheelchair skills. Was it enough? No, Did I understand the importance of some of the stuff they were teaching me at the time? Absolutely not. As I got out in the community, I realized it. I'm like, okay, I get it now. Now I understand why they want me to be able to jump a curb, things like that. Because when you get out in the real world, those are your problems you face. Yeah. And you have to be able to get up cracks or roll down cracks. And how are you going to do that without falling on your face? So it it is really important. And I didn't understand how important at the time. Mm -hmm. So was I totally ready to function out in the community? No. Can I get up my curb if I got out of my car on the road because the sidewalk was blocked for some reason? I wouldn't be able to get up the curb today without help. Yeah. I don't know if like, I think a lot of people aren't ready to take on the world when they leave the hospital you know there's that huge learning curve there I don't know if they can actually really properly prepare anybody really no I think they try and I I have to admit that that's one of the things they did very well Mm -hmm. as far as giving you the time I mean they only had so much time so I think sometimes if you were to ask them you know when you worked with Sandra did you feel she was ready to go home I would bet some of them would have said no but they ran out of time. Yeah. I I bet they would have. <laughs> Some of those guys that had to work with me, I think they thought, oh my God, she's never going to get this. And where it becomes important is even things like the elevator. Sometimes, you know, the elevator doesn't stop level with the floor. Well, if you don't yeah. know that and you go to roll in, you all of a sudden <laughs> hit, hit that and you just go flying forward and you think, holy cow, I still fell out of the chair because you didn't even notice. So that's where they teach you those things, but I didn't realize, you know, well, where does that come into play in the real world? Yeah. And a lot of that is just experience, right? Applying what you learn and 
I mean, they can't prepare you for every single situation out there because, you know, like you said, there's just not enough resources and not enough time. Oh, that's right. Okay, let's talk about when you're at home. So what were the first few days like when you got home? Well, we fell (laughs) doing a transfer from one of those stair chairs to the wheelchair. And my husband was like, no, I'm just going to lift you. And I said, put me on the floor. And he was (laughs) resisting. I'm just let me down on the floor. This is the safest thing we can do right now because I didn't want him to get hurt. So it was very hard. But what I found at home was it was very lonely. It was just my husband and myself. And I thought, and it, this was when it's really starting to sink in, you know, like this is our life and I don't know what to do. Like I can't get upstairs by myself. I now have to ask people for help all the time. And I was never one to ask people for help. I was always the one helping. How was I going to do that? And I found that I was starting to spiraling into depression. And I thought, I need to go back to work. That was one of the first thoughts I thought, because I thought I'm not sick. And I find when the nurse comes and gets me up and out of bed, and I come downstairs, I'm really stuck on that level till I go back upstairs to bed. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling like I have access to my living room and kitchen and that's it. And I couldn't sit on the couch because I couldn't get off the couch. And I thought, so here I was stuck in this chair all day, basically sitting either in the living room beside the couch or in the kitchen. And I thought, I need to get out of here. I'm going to go crazy. These walls are, are closing in on me and I'm not sick. So I need to go to work. So I went back to work very quickly. I was actually very shocked of how fast you went back to work after your injury. And I got to give you mad props for that because I know I would not be ready. I wasn't ready at the time that you went back. And so it takes a strong woman to be able to do that. I didn't think everything everything through. I didn't even think about how was I going to go to the bathroom when I was at work. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very important point that I would think about that. I just thought I have to get out of this house. I'm not sick, so I need to go to work. Yeah. So Sandra, how long was it before you went back to work after your injury? I went back to work the end of November of that year. Oh, wow. The accident happened in June. So So it's five months? Yeah, almost six. Yeah, they all thought I was crazy. The was, <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean I'm crazy? I'm not sick. Like, why would I stay at home? You're not offering me any more physio, so it's not like I have to go to physio. I was discharged yeah. from everything, so I thought I need to go to work. Like, I'm going crazy here. So, yeah, yeah. I, I phoned my doctor. I needed a note. I didn't even realize I needed a note to go back. And so I said, I need a note saying I'm fit to go back to work and I'm going to work. And so I used the transportation system out here, which is similar to DATS in the city, mm-hmm. and started to go back to work. And there was a physician that I work with who I came through the doors of the ICU and he was doing rounds and I knew that we weren't supposed to interrupt them. And he was doing rounds, so I didn't say anything. And he and I heard him say, "You can't roll by me without stopping to say hello." 
And he stopped me and gave me a hug and a kiss on the forehead and said, I'm so glad you're back at work. And if it wasn't for him and one of my other colleagues, I don't know if I could have gone back to work because that was so instrumental in just how supported I felt by the two of them that I knew that, okay, yes, I can do this because that was also a fear of mine. And one of the other reasons why I went back to work so early was I knew the longer I stayed away, the harder it was going to be to go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I thought I need to go back. And I don't even think he knows how instrumental he was in making me feel like I made the right decision, that I belonged there, that I had a youth mm-hmm. there because I wasn't sure what everyone would think. Like, how is a nurse going to be a nurse in a wheelchair? How does that actually look? I still mm-hmm. don't know how that looks. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. What I do know is I connect on a very different level with patients than I ever did before. Yeah. Well, you have a very personal understanding of what they're going through. And I think they just are very real and raw with me with their feelings. And they're not with other people. Mm -hmm. And I understand what they're going through. I get it. Yeah. Do you feel like by seeing you working that it gives other people hope? I think so. I think if nothing else, they see, wait a minute, life isn't over. Yeah. Life goes on and it looks different and you do it differently. Is it all roses? No. Mm -hmm. Do I wish I could feel the grass between my toes or the heat of a warm shower? Yes. I didn't know that, you know, even with a spinal cord injury, I don't know why I didn't know that, that people would lose that. Yeah. What that means to them. But I know that. I I live it. Yeah. And I understand. Mm-hmm. So I think they do see that there's hope. I, you know, if you think that, you know, we have people that are very young. Mm-hmm. I, I was fortunate enough that, I mean, this happened to me when I was 50. We have people who are 18 and it breaks your heart and you think, oh my God, you have your whole life ahead of you. But at least they can see that, you know, you think, can I get a job? Can I even work? What do I do? Yes, you can get a job and you can work. Yeah. And you do have value. So I I think it does. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I've met some of the nicest people that I've ever met in my life through this process. Yeah. That I know I never met before I mean being you and I worked in the same hospital and don't remember each other I know and I'm sure we crossed paths we oh yeah 100% we did yeah and yet we don't remember each other which is maybe a good thing (laughs) (laughs) because you know we weren't rude to each other because you always remember the people that were rude to you right (laughs) it's crazy yeah And, and I remember when I first applied to go to Ryu you had sent me an email back Mm -hmm. and you said that unfortunately you didn't have room for me right now, but you know, it breaks your heart every time you hear something like this happens to people. But if I ever need someone to talk to or someone to just cry with that you're there and that I could call you anytime. Mm -hmm. When I read that, I thought, my God, if this is what Ryu stands for, I need to be there. That's where I need to be. That's where I'm going to heal. Well, one of the things I vowed to do is to not let anybody go through their dark days alone. Cause I went through so many of mine alone. 
And <clears throat> by building this community, that's one of the things that, you know, that Ryu will do is we will stand with you during your dark times and through the happy times, <laughs> you know, more than just a rehab place is more than just neuro recovery. It's a community. And it is, it really, is. you know, and not just for the person injured, but their loved ones too, because they can sit and chat with other people that are going through the same thing with their loved ones. And they're grieving too. They've had, they've had a loss as well that, you know, it's hard for me to see, you know, that my spouse and my family's also had a loss when it's like, look, I can't think about you guys. I'm the one that lost everything. What are you talking about? But they have to do. Yeah, it affects everybody. So now having gone through everything that you've gone through and having the experience of being an RN for so many years, what gaps do you see in the system and what would you like to see change for those who will be coming through with a spinal cord injury? So one of the things we're working on right now, which is really good, and I don't know how much I can talk about, but there is a huge focus on spinal cord injury in Edmonton from the acute phase so right starting from ICU all the way through. So that is happening. There is a group formulated right now that has nursing on it, that has physicians. So I can't speak a lot about what they're doing, but it is happening. But physiotherapy, I know, is so important. And just, I don't know when it's too soon to tell people what the future is going to look like. Because I think for everyone, that time frame is going to be different. But what I think is really sad is the public system, in my opinion, is finished with you way too soon. Yeah. I really believe that, that they are done and then you're left to find other methods of carrying on with your rehabilitation. I'm lucky enough that I can afford to go to Ryu mm -hmm. and that for now, you guys are able to keep the prices low enough that... I can continue to go there. I know there's a lot of people that can't afford it. And sadly, when the public system is done with you and you're thinking, what do you mean you're done? I'm just starting. I have so much I need to do. And when you see your own progress, which is painfully slow, although your family sees significant progress that you don't see, you realize how beneficial it is and how important it is. Not just on the, the physical gains, but that whole community that you meet through a place like Ryu is so important. Well, and our goal is to be affordable and accessible to all, right? We don't want to increase our prices anymore, and we won't until we absolutely necessarily have to. And you know, we are trying to, I mean, it's been one of our goals to create a fund to help subsidize the fees for those who can't afford it. But COVID has put a plug in a lot of our plans or you know postpone them a lot yeah. of them but yeah we do feel the same that it is very very necessary to keep that activity level going and for the mental health side of things too it's important to have that yeah my hope is that the government would recognize that people are just starting in their rehabilitation not finishing and that I, it would be nice to see them fund a place like yours that's so open-minded you're not closed-minded yeah to anything that whatever your clients hope for, you're hoping to get them there. And will you get there? I don't know, but why don't we try? 
And these are the things we're going to try. And you're very open-minded and progressive versus very closed-minded. And this is what we did for 50 years. So we're going to continue to do it to tell people that no, people like you don't sit on a couch is horrible and devastating to the person. And that just would never happen in your facility from my experience for sure that would just not happen and be tolerated if someone did something like that so i think i think ongoing rehabilitation i would like to see investment in and opportunity you know to once you do go home and you realize oh my god like i really don't know how to maneuver in this wheelchair i need more help that you could continue to go access that 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 doesn't need to be privately looked for, that it's yeah. funded in some way for people. Mm-hmm. I think it's a shame, to be honest with you, that intermittent catheters, which any packaging that you get from any company says it's a one-time use and that mm-hmm. these are sterile, that they're not covered and that you're taught how to clean them. Are, are we serious? In this country, we're teaching people how to clean their catheters when any company you get them from says they're one-time use and they're sterile when they come. Why are they sterile then? Yeah. Well, I mean, Alberta is the only province that says that, and that's going to be changing. The They're looking at this now and that's going to change because it's not right. And I mean, this is a whole nother conversation. We could whole, have a whole nother podcast episode about this, yeah. but yeah, that is something that we are going to work to change because it is unacceptable. I have a couple last questions for you. Okay. What would you say to someone who's newly injured? What advice would you give them? Don't give up and do everything you can to get yourself stronger. Mm-hmm. You know, and the sky's the limit for you. Like you're important, you're valuable, and make sure that you find a community of people that can support you, both that are in wheelchairs and not. You need both. Yeah. Great advice. What would you say to healthcare professionals? I think healthcare professionals, they really need to look at themselves and say, although we're considered the experts, we're the experts in the pathophysiology of what happened, but we're not the expert in the experience that the patient's going through and that each experience is going to be different. Mm -hmm. Understand that people are in a very uncontrollable situation when this happens. And so some of their behaviors are, you know, they're trying to get some control in a very uncontrollable situation and to allow them to have that control, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And when they tell you what their goals are, don't tell them they're wrong or that they're not achievable. You don't know that until you try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of goals, what are your goals? Where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, boy. I always tell Nancy my dream, what my dream is, to be honest with you. My dream is we hold a patient care summit every year at the Royal mm-hmm. Island. And what it is, it's healthcare providers are all going to the summit to learn how they can be better advocates for their patients or provide them a better experience. And what I would mm-hmm. love to do is I'd love to be able to stand up there and talk about my experience which healthcare providers were instrumental in me feeling better and feeling valuable and which ones weren't and who that was and what does that look like? And, 
you know, some of the things that I was told, you know, that the, this goal was not achievable, that people like you don't do these things. And in the end, what I'd love to do is have Nancy and Alex there mm-hmm. and for me to be able to stand up at the end and, and walk over and introduce them and just explain how instrumental they were and mm-hmm. how minded they were to any possibility that I wanted to try to achieve and to actually be able to get up and and walk over is what I would love to do yes I don't think there'd be a dry eye in the place (laughs) no there wouldn't let's go for it Sandra yeah let's do it that's what I'd love to do well Sandra thank you so much for sharing your story and for being so open and vulnerable with us. It means a lot to us that you are willing to share this. And for people who are listening, I'm sure it's a great learning lesson for them as well. You know, you just provide that unique perspective of being an ICU RN and having a spinal cord injury and then going through the whole system. And so I just want to give you a really big heartfelt thank you. You're welcome. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.